Our reading today is from Acts chapter 18, starting at verses 23 and going through to Acts 19, verse 10. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a G named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who came after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when he became stubborn, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's uh, good to see everyone, and uh, especially if you're a guest, it's always nice that we have to uh, put out extra chairs and all that good stuff. So there are a few up here if you still need one. Um, you have to get right on the front row, so I'll try not to spit or cough on you or anything. Um, we are continuing in our series through the book of Acts. Um, we've just been methodically working our way through uh, the book, and um, we've kind of... Uh, called this series Living as Resurrection People because we started it really after last Easter and we will finish really um, at the end of April. So it'll take us, it will have taken us, well, we've taken breaks to do other things through there, but essentially we'll, we've been in, in the book of Acts uh, about a year. So um, this is really where we see Paul's third missionary journey. So we see the Apostle Paul, he has taken uh, two trips already, um, really from his home church in, in Antioch. And uh, he's making his way westward into, into Europe, and he's done a couple different trips now. 
Um, and last week we saw that really kind of culminated in, in the city of Corinth. And he made his way back, stopping at Ephesus, but promising them, if the Lord willed, uh, that he would come back. Um, and so this is really now the beginning of his third missionary journey uh, that we see um, uh, starting to take place. And what I want us to ask uh, about uh, today and what, is, what I want us to think about, um, particularly through what we see in this section, is what, what, like, what are we doing here this morning? Like, why do we gather together? Why do we exist as a church? Why does Village exist as a church? Why did we feel uh, compelled to, to plant this new church a few years ago? Um, and there's lots of different answers you could give to that question. Lots of valid uh, answers that you could give to that question. We gather together. We exist to worship God, uh, to encourage one another, to grow in our knowledge of God, grow in intimacy and maturity with, with the Lord. Um, we gather together to pray together. Um, we do all these sorts of things that kind of make up uh, what, a, what a church does. But if you, um, if you have your Bibles, I don't have it on the screen because we're, we're going to stay mostly in our, in our text this morning. But if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 28. Um, because this is really the, uh, it often gets called the Great Commission. Um, but this is Jesus' last words to his disciples. He's like, go and these are the instructions that I want to leave you. And really everything begins from this instruction, right? So this is Jesus. He's getting ready to uh, ascend into, into, into heaven and, and all this different stuff. And he says this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority belongs to Jesus. All authority, heavens, earth, the entire universe belongs to Jesus. And because of that, then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. And he gives us this assurance as we go on this mission, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is, this is really how churches begin. It's how we're sent out. It's, how churches, it's the reason why churches are planted, because all authority has been given to Jesus he tells us then that we are to go and make disciples of other people. Go and teach them to, uh, teach them to observe, to obey everything under um, the authority of Jesus. And so this is what we do. We go out and we make disciples. And this is, this is what Paul and his team are doing. They're going into new places to, um, to teach people about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Um, and so let's look at these kind of stages as we think about um, discipleship this morning. And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Um, and so I want us to think about not just us collectively as a church and our job to do that, but even individuals, and then even asking the question, well, where am I kind of as a, am I a disciple of Jesus? Because we're going to see these snapshots of different kind of people in different stages of their faith, different stages of, of their discipleship, and the people that kind of are involved with that. And so this first thing that I want to look at, the, the first disciples I want us to look at are the new disciples, these new church plants that Paul goes to follow up with, right? So we start off in this section of, uh, of Acts um, uh, at the end, in verse 23, um, this is where we left off last week. After spending some time back at his home church reporting what was going on there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So what, it, what, it, what is that region? That is the region of where he was in, in his previous journeys. He's going to go and follow up with the church plants that got planted in these areas. 
And it's important, right? He's following up to, to, to the disciples that were there to strengthen the disciples. And that's what Paul is making. He's making disciples, which is important because he goes back to visit them. He wants, he, later on we'll see his instruction to these churches is appoint leaders, gather together, make sure your worship is orderly. Like there's instruction that comes along then that we get more full picture of what a church should be, right? The marks of a, of a biblical kind of church. Um, but these are, these are in the early days, uh, in the new days. And so for Paul, it wasn't enough just to make converts. It wasn't like, hey, you believe in Jesus, great, pray this prayer, baptize you, boom, you're done, great, on to the next one, never to think about them again. No, he wanted to make disciples, that they would grow in, in, in their knowledge and intimacy with the Lord, that they in turn then would make other disciples, that churches would be formed, and the gospel of Jesus Christ would turn the world upside down. And so there uh, he goes and he makes disciples. And it, 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 it says like baptizing them in the name of the Father, the, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus does. This is what we're commanded to do. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in my name. Teaching them to observe and obey with this promise that I'm with you always. We saw that last week, right? Paul starts to get afraid. He's frightened. He's, there's pressure to maybe not be as bold, and Jesus comes and reminds him, I'm with you. I'm with you always. And so he starts this third missionary journey, and his, his aim is he's heading toward Ephesus. Um, Ephesus would be on the very eastern kind of edge, or sorry, western edge of modern-day Turkey. All the places that, we, that he will visit on the way um, are from his previous trips, so he's visiting these churches uh, strengthening the disciples, spending some time there, checking in on them, no doubt doing some teaching, strengthening leaders uh, as he heads toward Ephesus. So he's, no doubt he's going to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, city in Antioch, this area of, of Galatia that he was in before. And we, we see Paul's heart in his letters to them, right? In Galatians 4, 19, he will say that he anguishes over them because he's not, he's not with them. I can't imagine like, being in a, in a place for just a short amount of time, gathering believers together, you, you know, a, a kind of point of leaders, and then because people are trying to kill you, you move on to the next place. It wasn't like Paul was like, I got to get out of here. It's like the Lord continually moved him along. But he anguishes over them. What is going on? How, how are you getting on? Are, are you being persecuted? Are wolves coming in among you? He says he anguishes over them. In 1 Thessalonians, he'll write to that church and he calls them his joy and his hope. He says, you are my glory and my joy, my crown of boasting before the Lord, right? Um, it was going well there. The Lord was blessing the work there and he was encouraged by that. And we see Paul deeply caring for his spiritual children. He'll call them that. John does the same in 1 John. He calls them my little children. There's this affection that is there because he cares for them, he cares for their spiritual well-being. He's encouraged by uh, when they, when they're when they're growing. Um, he's losing sleep, not knowing uh, things about them. So we see that he deeply cares for his his spiritual children, and this is what we want our church to be marked by as well. We want to see people come to know Jesus and grow in the grace uh, and grow in grace in the context of healthy churches. We want our church to be that. We want the churches that we plant to be a part of that. The network, the church planting network that we're a part of, Acts 29, that's our goal. We want to see healthy churches planting other uh, healthy churches um, so the people can grow in grace. 
And so we have these new, these new kind of disciples that Paul is caring for. He wants to make sure that they are growing uh, in, in grace. He wants to protect them from uh, the enemy. And so he goes and he makes sure he's visiting them along the way, taking great care. Um, uh, lots to be learned in, uh, in the way that Paul makes disciples. Not just making orphans, right? It's one thing to have a baby. It's another thing to raise that baby and nurture and admonition, um, teaching them, nurturing them, protecting them into full kind of maturity. And this is what Paul is doing. He's kind of given spiritual birth, um, but he wants to come along and, and, and make sure that things are going well. So he's responsible with that. The second characters then that we start to see um, are characters that we saw last week, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and um, a, a man named Apollos. So this man named Apollos, while Paul is visiting the churches on his way to Ephesus, um, Apollo shows up in Ephesus, and he's there preaching. Now, if you remember, um, when Paul left Corinth last time and he stops off at Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila go with him, and then they stay there, and he goes on uh, back to um, Jerusalem and visiting the church in, in Antioch. And so you have Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus. Paul is on his way there as he's visiting churches, and this man named Apollos shows up. Um, and Apollos is there preaching and teaching while Paul is on his way. What we know about Apollos from the text here, he's from Alexandria. Alexandria was a well-educated place. Uh, it was an, uh, an intellectual center at the time. It had a world-renowned library. Um, obviously, it's before the internet. Um, so you're like, scholars would make their way to Alexandria. There were documents, there were books, there were things there in this library. Um, years earlier, the Alexandrian community per, uh, produced the Old Testament in a Greek translation. So there are people that are there, they're biblical scholars, they're there doing work. Um, later, religious Christian scholars like Clement, Athanasius, Origen um, would all come out of Alexandria. They would have all been in this place. And so it's a, it's a high intellectual area, um, it's a religious center as well. Um, you know, it's probably, think like seminary and, and kind of a, a place like that where, where these thinkers were, were um, doing this. So this is where Apollos comes from. Um, and it seems like, because we're going to see uh, Apollos doesn't quite have everything worked out yet. Um, and other guys, there's the other disciples that don't have everything worked out yet. But I think there's some similarities there, but also differences. Apollos appears to be a genuine Christian appears to be a genuine believer. And we see a few clues in that. One, it says that he was, in, he was instructed in the way of Jesus. Um, so he was instructed in that. He has been discipled. People have worked through the scripture with him. He's been instructed in the way of Jesus. It says that he was competent in the scriptures, accurately teaching the things of Jesus. Right? So this is uh, in verse 25. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was competent in verse 24 in the scriptures. He was an eloquent person. He knew how to communicate within that. And then in, in verse 25, it also says, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he's fervent in spirit. Um, in the original language there, and if you have a footnote in, our, in the if you have an, an English Standard uh, Version Bible, you'll see a footnote um, after the word spirit. There's a, a definitive article that is there. It is fervent in the spirit. So this isn't that he was just a spirit, you know, a kind of spirit guy, or he had a real kind of spirit as he was speaking. He was fervent in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so the, it appears that Apollos is a genuine believer, genuine Christian. But he is lacking some understanding. 
Um, it says he was only aware of the baptism of John. This will come up again. He only knew of the baptism of John. The baptism of John was one of repentance. Uh, John, this is John the Baptist, who had come before Jesus as a forerunner, preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, this idea that you must repent, the kingdom of God is, is near, it's at hand, uh, the Messiah is coming, um, in, in that kind of way. And, and so John um, gathered a lot of disciples, remember? Uh, because some of the disciples were like, well, should we follow Jesus? Or, or you know, were John's disciples? And John's like, no, um, go. You, I, I've just, I, I'm just here to prepare the way. You go and be a follower of Jesus. But it seems like there was some gaps in there um, in what has happened from John and what happened through the ministry of Jesus into baptism, um, not John's baptism, but baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so there's some gaps in Apollos' understanding. There's some gaps in his theology. Um, and, and no doubt particularly around the practice of baptism. And so we see Priscilla and Aquila um, give this great model, give us a great example of how to correct a teacher. How do you cor- uh, correct a kind of prominent, high-capacity um, teacher? And so what do they do? Um, it says that they, they pull him aside, they took him aside, and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos is an accurate teacher. He's a faithful teacher, but accuracy is a spectrum, right? They're like, ah, yeah, man, you're really good. You're very accurate in some things, but there are some things you need to be more accurate on. Um, and they pull him aside, and they begin to, um, to, to do that. And so they don't do it publicly. This isn't a sin issue. He's not in sin. It's not an unrepentant sin, because there are times where you have to publicly out uh, a teacher for different things. This isn't that at all. He's just, he needs some gaps filled in his theology. They don't embarrass him or, or shame him. Um, and they demonstrate both humility and compassion, right? Uh, compassion to him. No doubt probably brought him into their home. And here we see this, uh, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, um, instruct him further in the way of the Lord. And it also demonstrates their conviction. Their conviction. It wasn't like, oh, you know what? He's pretty good. He's pretty accurate. Eh, close enough. We'll let, we can let that slide. No, there was conviction there to correct a deficiency, but to do that in a real Christ-honoring way, a Christ-honoring way. This is uh, really an example of what we then see Paul require of leaders within the church, particularly uh, with elders. In, in 2 Timothy 2, um, Paul's giving requirements of of what godly elders and leaders should look like. And listen to what he says uh, in this, and then think about Priscilla and Aquila. He said, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. This isn't people that are just constantly looking to debate, constantly looking to quarrel and, 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 and to, uh, you know, debate everything. But kind to everyone, able to teach. So they're able to teach. Priscilla and Aquila were able to do that. Apollo seems to be able to do that for sure patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. How do you correct? And this is correcting opponents. Apollos was one of their opponents. But they do it with gentleness, don't they? They pull him aside. They correct him with gentleness. Not quarrelsome. Able to teach. Correcting their opponents with gentleness. Why? Why why do you do that? Because the aim isn't to win the argument. The aim isn't to win the debate. The aim isn't to 
um, say, I know more than you, and so let me correct you. It says, um, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their, their senses, escape the snare of the devil, and actually know the truth. The goal in correcting other people the goal in, in when we enter into kind of debates, whether that's with opponents or whether it's with each other, right? Because this is our call. We're to make disciples. We're to, we're to care for one another. We're to correct and rebuke one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to do all these things within the body of Christ as well. And we're to do that with gentleness. We're to do that with respect. Why? Because the point isn't to try to win an argument. It's not to win a debate. The point is to win that person um, into the body of Christ, that they would actually know the truth, that they would know Jesus, and that's important for us as we think about, right? As you're in the workplace, as you're talking with family or neighbors, or, or especially those of you that are in university, right? Or in just public dialogue. Um, we can enter into these spaces of talking about our faith or talking about different issues. And maybe we're coming at it from a worldview, uh, a Christian worldview. We're trying to have a biblical worldview. Someone isn't. And it's very easy in those moments sometimes to ratchet that up and get very emotional. And, and I, I need to win this argument. I need to win the debate. And Paul says, do it with kindness, do it with gentleness, because winning the debate isn't the point. Trying to win the person, that they might know the truth, that God might grant them repentance, that God might open their eyes. And so they set, uh, Priscilla and Aquila set this beautiful example of that. Um, we don't correct each other, brothers and sisters, with an argumentative, critical tone. We do it with an open Bible and with love. That's how we enter into these things together. And so may we be encouraged to do this with each other in our missional communities, um, in our core groups, right? That's the whole point. The point of those nights where we get together, uh, we'll, we'll take questions uh, uh, after a Sunday sermon. We open up our Bibles and we work through that. There, there's no doubt times in there where we, you might see things differently. You might have a different opinion than, than the person sitting next to you. Both Christians, both trying to, your life experience, whatever it may be, um, is informed in different ways. How do we then engage with those things together? With an open Bible and with love for each other um, in that. And this is how Jesus builds his church, right? This is the kind of personal disciple making. And it's so important. And yet a lot of it is kind of unseen, right? Um, Apollos and Paul and, and whoever stands up here, you know, my job is to kind of do this and it's very visible and it's very seen, and, it, you know, sometimes I get the crowd, oh, Lucas has done great things. You know what? Uh, okay, there's, there's parts of that that are true, but so much of the work of the church and building it up in us is us discipling one another. How many one another's are we, do we see all throughout the scripture? I think it's like 47 of them or 52 or, or all of these things that we're to do with one another. It's this personal disciple making, us doing that together. And so, so much of that is unseen. Priscilla and Aquila just take him aside quietly, gently, probably in, in their home. This unseen kind of work um, that was done with most people. And yet, then Apollos will go and preach powerfully, and his ministry is very fruitful, and he's known um, for his ministry. And yet, Apollo, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are a part of that. They, they share in the credit of that, because what the work, they, they were um, helping shape that ministry, and yet doing that very kind of quietly behind the scenes. And so, take courage in that. Some of you are like, I could never stand up front. I'm not gifted with those kind of gifts. That's fine. Um, God gifts us, as we'll see later in, the, in, in Paul's letters, in, in, in a myriad of different ways. All important, all critical to how Jesus builds his church. All of us get to play our part in that, and that's super exciting. 
Um, it's exciting to be a part of a, a church where you can visibly, week in, week, week in and week out, see what God is doing. Um, and we all get to participate in that. It's also important that we look at Apollo's attitude in the instruction too. No doubt he was probably more educated than them. Um, these are tent makers. They're working with their hands. They don't have an intellectual, scholarly kind of job. Um, and yet, they've studied. They know their Bible. They know their theology. They know their doctrine. So he comes along, no doubt, has more letters after his name than those guys. He's a skilled orator, which is always tempting when someone's a very skilled orator because skilled orators can kind of give the impression that they're smarter than they are. Um, when often they're not. And yet, Apollos maintains this teachable heart, a pliable kind of heart. Um, he receives their correction. He, 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 he receives them filling in the gaps in what he knows. And that's critical for all of us as lifelong learning disciples, that we have teachable hearts, that we're open to those things. We never get to a point where we're not ready to receive more from, uh, from the Lord. Right? Well, listen, I've been to seminary. Have you been to seminary? Oh, you haven't been to seminary? I've been to seminary. So I guess I'm the expert in everything now. Now, That's ridiculous. One, you can't learn everything in seminary. Seminary is really just to help you figure out how to keep learning throughout the rest of your life. That's really what seminary does. It gives you a framework so that you can continue to learn the rest of your life. Um, And that's what we all need to be doing. And so we have... um, Uh, teachable hearts. We're open to correction and instruction. Again, with open Bibles. Let's see what the scripture actually says. And we do this together as lifelong learning disciples, but especially as leaders, especially for those of us that lead, um, leading missional communities, leading different ministries. Um, It's critical that we um, have that spirit as well. We see then the fruit of, of this um, as we look at Apollos. So Apollos then um, <clears throat> leaves Ephesus and moves to Corinth. Now we're not told why, but my hunch is uh, he's spending time with a Priscilla and Aquila. He's spending time with them. They've just come from there. Um, no doubt they've shared their experiences, the need that is there. And God in his sovereignty is sending Paul to Ephesus, sends a capable leader and teacher back to Corinth as well. They needed it. If you read First and Second Corinthians, and that church is a mess. So they needed, they needed someone um, to, go, to go back. So maybe Priscilla and Aquila whet his appetite. We're not told for sure. Um, but he goes from Ephesus back to Corinth. It's interesting, too, um, that we're told these little details in the Scripture are there for reasons. We're told that he actually, they, uh, the church in Ephesus, send a letter of recommendation to the church in Corinth, right? They're vouching for him. Um, he wished to travel. Uh, the brothers encouraged him. They, they said, yeah, that's a good idea. That's right. Um, they affirmed, affirmed that. And then they wrote to the disciples, encouraging them to welcome him, is verse 27. Um, now, this isn't necessarily a text about church membership at all, but it just gives us a snapshot of how church membership essentially was working back then. Churches who knew who, who belongs to us and who doesn't belong to us. And if this person's going to go to another part of the church, 
um, we'll write to them and say, hey, this is a, a good guy. You need to welcome him. Um, he's not a troublemaker. He's not, uh, you know, uh, what, what Paul kind of might have been, right? There's a bit of suspicion. The church is being persecuted, people trying to infiltrate it. They're trying to do all sorts of stuff. They're like, no, this guy's legitimate. And so they write uh, to him this letter of recommendation. Um, and again, that's important for us. It's important for us as we are a body of Christ. Um, it's important for us uh, within the church, but also outside of the church. Why? Why is that? Why is church membership important? What does that matter? Um, part, part of it is because church membership is one side of a two-sided coin. The other part of that uh, side of that is church discipline, right? And we'll see this in the church actually in Corinth, where people are just not living as Christians. They're really probably not. They're living in open, public, unrepentant sin, um, and they're doing damage to the, to the name of Jesus, because people are like, oh, you're a Christian, you belong to that church, and yet you're sleeping with your mother-in-law, and that's cool, and that's fine. And, and, and so the church has to make a separation and say, no, that's not fine. This person's not repenting in, uh, of their sin. They're not, they're opening that, and they remove them from that. But you can't do that unless you actually know, well, who is a part of us? All for the name um, of Jesus. Now, thankfully, in our short uh, existence, that's really only happened once. And hopefully it won't happen again. But it's important. Why? Because of the gospel. And, and so we see then, he's sent there, and in verse 27 it says, he was a great help to the believers who through grace believed. He goes and he ministers, and he's a great help to that church. Uh, he's a great help to the, to the believers that are there. Um, the Lord is, has topped up his, his understanding of the great picture of, of the gospel. He is sent to this church, and he's a great help. And I love how it says that, right? Who through grace had believed. It's through grace they had believed. This is going to actually break into a little bit um, in Corinth, again, not the, uh, a, a little bit of the messy, a, a bit of a messy church, because Paul arrives, and we all do what we do as humans, right? Some people are like, oh, this this Apollos guy's amazing. This guy's great. And I'm team Apollos. And other guys are like, well, no, Paul, Paul was the main guy like that was here. I'm, I'm team Paul, right? And we, we can get into kind of factions. And Paul writes and addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, this is what he says uh, uh, to them. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, um, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You're not believing in, in, as, like, as a Christian, for one says, well, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? He asked them. What then is Apollos? Paul's asking the question, well, who's Apollos? What's Apollos? And he asks it of himself, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul was, was really clear. Listen, um, Apollos was a great help. Paul came, planted these seeds, saw fruit born from that. Apollos comes along in phase two, waters the seeds, sees great help from that. But Paul is really quick to remind them, while we should honor faithful leaders, because he'll talk about that as well, should honor leaders, those that, you know, uh, they're worthy of that, we shouldn't deify them. They're just people. They're just servants. They're ways in which God uses them. And Paul rebukes their idolatry. 
Um, and we do the same thing, right? Nothing has changed. We kind of have within our kind of Christian little subculture, you know, a, a Christian celebrity kind of culture, right? I'll just hear that person or this person. And thank God for podcasts. They're great and they're amazing. Um, but, but if we're not careful, we can start to actually follow Apollos or I, or I follow this guy or this guy. Or we break into these kind of tribes based on personalities, Paul would write to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 21, he says, let no, one be, let no one boast in human leaders. Don't, don't boast in human leaders, right? And, and later in, in, or earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's always trying to bring their attention back to Jesus. It's not about the leaders. They were used of God. Honor them for that. But all the glory and honor goes to Jesus. This is why we use this for villages growing pretty rapidly. We're planning on planting a second congregation uh, in the south of the city. But Jesus is building his church. Like, honestly. I know because I get, like, firsthand seats at that. Like, it, he just does stuff that I didn't have anything to do with. We were hoping to buy this property. And we're like, okay, that's going to be a lot. We probably can't do that right now. Not really sure how that's going to work out. And then I just get a call from a church going, hey, we want to match up to 50,000 pounds. And you're like, okay. I guess Jesus is, is doing stuff because I didn't ask for that. I didn't, I didn't have, it wasn't part of my like strategy. I'm just going to drop 50K on you. Okay, we'll take that. Sweet. <laughs> Jesus is going about doing what Jesus does. And Paul wants to make sure that their focus is on that. Later we see Paul uh, refer to Apollos as our brother. Um, they end up ministering together in the same city. Back in, in Ephesus, it looks like, uh, they're ministering together. And what an encouragement that must have been to, uh, to Paul, to have a co-laborer alongside of him like that. Um, one that he didn't feel threatened by. Uh, they would minister together. They each had a part in their ministry in that um, with all of the focus and credit and glory and honor um, going to Jesus. And may that be said uh, of us as well. So we see uh, Apollos go to Corinth. He's working there now, um, uh, helping to build up the body there. And then we see Paul, um, after visiting the other churches, he uh, arrives in Ephesus. So, <clears throat> and as he comes into Ephesus, it says in verse uh, 1, there he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, um, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he asked them, well, then how are you baptized? And into what were you baptized? And into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism was with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So he starts to explain um, the ministry of, of Jesus. So Paul evangelizes uh, in Ephesus. <laughs> and he starts with these group of kind of, probably inverted commas, disciples. They were disciples, but they were disciples of John. Um, they're not disciples of Jesus because they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They have no idea Pentecost has happened. Probably, it seems like, don't know much about the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, just kind of had gotten, still living in an Old Testament kind of worldview up until John the Baptist um, comes along. These people are almost Christians, right? 
They have, a, they have a framework of the Old Testament. They've understood John the Baptist and his promises that Jesus is, is the Messiah that you're waiting for. He is the one that is to come. You should believe in him. Um, and it seems like maybe they've moved or, or they've, they just they don't know the rest of the story yet. And they readily admit, um, no, we didn't receive a Holy Spirit, never even heard of that. Now, Paul will write in Romans 8, verse 9, he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is the evidence, the marker of that you're a legitimate Christian. That's, that's, that's it. And so he teaches them, these disciples, there's about 12 of them, he says, and he teaches them on Jesus, his ministry, who he is. Obviously, we get a, a, a summary statement of what he taught them. It's not like he just said this one sentence and they were like, oh, I believe, and it all went in, right? Paul, Luke, who's writing this, gives us these little like summary statements of what he taught them. So it's more than that um, of what's happening here, but he gives us uh, essentially the uh, gist of what he was teaching them. So he's teaching them about Jesus, his life, his ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, no doubt. The, uh, they're ignorant of Pentecost, still living in an Old Testament kind of understanding, and certainly didn't understand that Jesus had issued, issued in the new covenant, that they would be baptized into this new covenant in the Spirit. And this is important. We get this snapshot of these almost Christians. Um, so they have some understanding, they have some faith, they certainly seem to want, uh, want to believe in what uh, John the Baptist was talking about. But they're not quite there yet. They're not, they're, they're not legitimate Christians because they don't have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. Paul is going to write to the, the Corinthian church later, and he's going to ask them to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. So Paul writing to a church that supposedly then has Christians in it, and his instruction to this church and the Christians that are in it, so-called Christians, are examine yourself and make sure you're legit. Make sure you're actually um, a part of the, of the faith. Now, for the sake of time, I don't have time to teach through the entire book of 1 John as well today. You'll be glad to know. But let me encourage you to go and read 1 John. It's a very short book. You could read it over a cup of coffee. Um, but in that, John basically will lay out three different kind of tests, if you will. Um, asking that question, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, the ultimate answer is, do you have the spirit of Jesus? But, but John kind of gives us, I think, a helpful framework. One, there's a doctrinal test. Do they believe the gospel? Do they actually believe that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he, he actually um, did? Do we believe in the, in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, that he is the son of God, right? The gospel, do you believe the gospel? So there's a doctrinal test. Secondly, there's kind of a practical or an ethical test. Do they walk in light and love, as 1 John will say? Do you practice the way of Jesus? Is it, okay, so there's the doctrinal test. There's kind of my understanding intellectually of, of what that is, yes, Yes, I, I believe that. I believe that. Brilliant. I understand that. Um, so far, you've got as far as Satan. <laughs> Satan believes all those things too. Not a Christian. 
So the second then part of that is this practical ethical test. Am I obeying Jesus? So go and make disciples, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've instructed you. That's Jesus. So are we doing that? Am I walking in light, in the light? Or am I still walking in darkness saying that I believe these things? So there's a, a practical ethical test. It doesn't mean we do that perfectly. It doesn't mean we still don't stumble. There are areas in our life that you're like, oh, I'm probably more in darkness than the light in this area, but I want to walk in the light in this area. And then thirdly is experientially. Do they know the abiding presence of the Spirit of Christ? Is the Spirit of Christ present in me? Is he convicting me of my sin? Is he assuring me of the love of Jesus in my life? Am I aware of his presence? Right? And these really are the culmination of, of these things. You can really kind of believe certain things and you can kind of go along and, and kind of fit in and do certain things. But Paul says it's, it's this third step, it's the spirit of Christ in us that is the validating um, way that we know. So Paul leads these, these guys through examining themselves and praise God it leads to their conversion. They're like, yes. Um, everything's been leading up to, you've kind of filled in the last bit. Yes, we repent, we believe, and they're baptized in the Spirit. They move from religious people, being religious people, who had some kind of faith, theists for sure, to actually being Christians, new life, the Spirit of God coming upon them. And we see the evidence of that as they start to um, speak in tongues, they prophesy, this outward, visible evidence and demonstration of the Spirit um, falling on them. They had faith in a general, theistic kind of way, but not in a, in a personal, believing in the person and work of Jesus with repentance kind of way. And this is, this is Northern Ireland, is it not? Well, we've talked about this at length before, but we'll talk about it before, because this, this kind of first, yeah, I believe I believe in Jesus, I believe all those things. Yeah, you know, I've been to Sunday school. Yeah, I believe those sort of things. So that must mean I'm a Christian. Nope. Or I'll, go, I'll, even, I'll even practice some of the way of Jesus. I'll come to church regularly. You know, I'll, I'll try to be a good moral person. Nope. That's just moralistic deism. I believe in a God, I'm trying to be a good person. And none of that has anything to do with faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. You can be a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a, you can be a, a, a you know, kind of religious kind of pseudo-Christian and still be in this camp. It's faith and repentance in Jesus. It's believing in the gospel and what he has done that then allows us to receive the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, that then empowers us to know and to believe and to walk in, in repentance. And so this is what we see here. They uh, speak in tongues. There's this powerful manifestation. Um, now, again, this is, uh, when we read the scriptures, especially narratives, um, we have to ask ourselves, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this describing something that has happened or is this prescribing the way that it always has to happen? Um, and it's evident that this is descriptive. Not everybody in the moment of your conversion is gonna speak in tongues and start to prophesy. Um, didn't happen with Paul, doesn't happen with a lot of the people that we see converted. Um, but it happens in these kind of key moments for particular kind of reasons. Um, 
we see it happen really, um, these kind of mini Pentecosts. What happened in Pentecost when the Spirit of God came, the new covenant is, is ushered in. It happens in Jerusalem, in Judea. It happens as it moves out into Samaria with the Samaritans. And it happens as it moves out into the other most parts of the world. These new kind of beachheads that God uses to take new ground for the gospel. Um, here, it also then is an evidence of um, moving from a, re- a kind of religious, theistic kind of way into a powerful new life experience of being legitimate in Christ. Praise God for that. We still believe uh, that God uses these kind of gifts. Um, and again, I didn't have time to fe- uh, teach through the entire book of 1 John. I certainly have, don't have time this morning to teach through uh, all of what we believe about those things as well. We have done um, and I'm sure we will do, again, happy to chat that through. So John, um, uh, Paul is then moving into the synagogue, which he always does. It's his custom. He starts to evan- with his evangelism in the synagogue, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, right? It's what he just did with these guys. What's the thing you need to know? You need to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that, that, that uh, John the Baptist was talking about. All of your knowledge of the Old Testament as a Jew, you need to realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. And here, uh, what's interesting is that he's there for three months um, before opposition really kind of sets in. Maybe they were a little more open. Um, maybe they had a little bit more of that Berean spirit. I don't know. Um, but he gets three, three months um, dialoguing and discussing, um, reasoning, it says, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of God. And that's the, what the Old Testament's all about. It's about the kingdom of God um, coming. But then he, as always happens with the Jews, uh, they hit their limit. You have many of them that are converted and become Christians, and the rest harden their hearts. Their hearts are hardened, um, they become stubborn and continuing in unbelief. May that not be descriptions of us. Some of the saddest descriptions of people in the Bible, hard-hearted and just continuing, persisting in unbelief. Speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So they're being divisive now um, within that. And so in that, Paul, my work here is done. I'm now going on to my main task with the Gentiles. And he does something interesting. He rents out a lecture hall. Um, Here it's the Hall of Tyrannus. And he lectures. Uh, We know from other kind of um, uh, documents and historical documents that it seems like he uh, rented out the hall during the hottest part of the day, kind of when everybody was on their siesta. So from about 11 in the morning to 4 o'clock at night, three or four in the evening, um, he would lecture in this hall. This, we don't know anything about who Tyrannus is, but this was his lecture hall. Um, what was common is probably kind of like a school. Um, so disciples of Tyrannus would come. He would lecture from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. in the morning um, with his students and his disciples. And then he rented out the hall to other people in the afternoon. And so P- Paul takes this slot. While everybody's not working, most people are probably asleep. Um, it was said that most people, there were more people asleep in Ephesus at 1 p.m. than there were at 1 a.m., because it's hot. I mean, I've been to Turkey. It's hot. Uh, and it's hot during that part of the day. Um, and that's the part of the day. You can see Paul maybe making tents in the morning, doing his, his kind of normal work in the morning. And then everybody takes this break during the hottest part of the day. And he teaches for three or four hours a day, making disciples. In this public place, all sorts of people um, were welcoming into this place. And for two years, he's essentially planting a church in Ephesus. 
renting the hall of Tyrannus out um, for that. That's great. When we started Village, we rented out a hall um, for a while. Met in a pub for a while. Met in homes for a while. And then God was kind enough to give us this space. But what's interesting, it says, he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a pretty powerful ministry. For two years, based out of here, and and, and culminating in in all these other missionary journeys that he had done, mainly in Asia, which is how they would have described modern-day Turkey, all of Turkey. um, Now, I don't know that that means every single person, a part of the population, but the gospel permeated out into major cities and towns throughout this time. Um, probably during this time, the, the people who are converted go back and plant the church in, in Colossae, of which he'll write to them, the church uh, of Colossians. Um, the ministry is developing here. Disciples are being made. Those disciples are then moving out into other parts and making disciples. And we get this beautiful snapshot of how the gospel works, of how the church works, of how our mission, how the mission of Jesus was accomplished and is still being accomplished. That's why the, the network that we're a part of is called Acts 29. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So the point is we want to just continue the work that we see happening there. We want to be biblical and just continue to do the work that we see happening here. And so in conclusion... We get these snapshots of lots of different disciples and the people around them pictured here. I want you to think about you and your life. Which one of those kind of resonates the most with you? Maybe you're a a pretty new believer. You're you're a legitimate Christian, but like those early early churches, Paul went back to strengthen them. He went back uh, to strengthen them in their faith. Maybe you're young and immature in the faith. And the challenge then is to continue to grow, um, get into the word, be faithful um, um, to missional community and core, all these different means of grace that God has given to us as the church um, to continue to grow in the faith. Maybe you're more mature in the faith, like Priscilla and Aquila, lay leaders in the church. They weren't full-time workers. They were lay leaders in the church, but they were helping making disciples, right? Right? And we need more of those kind of people in our church. We need more missional communities. We need more. um, We're going to need more elders. We're going to need more kind of leaders, especially as we start to plant a second congregation. Maybe that's you. Maybe the Lord will use you um, as one of our lay leaders in that. Maybe you're an Apollos in the waiting or in the making. Maybe full-time ministry might be on the cards for you teaching, helping plant churches, devoting yourself full-time um, to equipping, to make d- disciples and know how to make other disciples. Maybe that's you this morning. What's the next step for you? How do we discern that call? And we would love to be a part of, of helping you do that. Maybe you're an almost Christian. Grown up, especially in Northern Ireland, right? We all kind of know roughly or we have at least an idea of what we think the gospel is. We've been exposed to these things. But maybe working through that, where am I on that? Do I believe in my head, a doctrinal kind of belief? Yeah, I give intellectual assent to that. Is there a a practical kind of moral impetus there? I'm trying to, to do these things. I'm trying to kind of roughly be a good person. But has the experiential part 
in faith and repentance, responding uh, to the personal work of Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe today would be the day for that. (laughs) Amazing. I'm happy to chat through that in more detail as well. I hope hope none of us would find ourselves in the place of those Jews, though, that heard the message, were exposed to those things, but they were just hard-hearted and just continued in disbelief. May that not be said of us. May the Holy Spirit break through as we sung this morning, (laughs) help me believe. Maybe I'm in this like stage one, stage two. I I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Where are you this morning? Lots of different snapshots on this spectrum of discipling and disciple making. And how can we, what are the the lessons that we can then learn as a church from these things as well? Um, So lots of food for thought, lots of things to think about as we move into missional communities this morning. But let's let's respond this morning to what the Lord is doing to us as individuals as well. What's the next step as you a disciple? Disciple, being a disciple of Jesus by its very definition is not a static thing. It's movement, it's momentum. I'm, I'm following, I'm practicing the way of Jesus. And so on this kind of timeline of maturity in my faith, of which, by the way, there isn't really an end this, in this side of life. It's not like, oh, there's the, des- the destination is in the presence of God. Um, so it's an it's a, it's a ongoing, continual timeline. For, for you as a disciple, what is, what is that? What is next? Or what is, what, is, what is it that God's calling you to focus more on this time in this time of your life? And what does it mean then in community with other people as we're on mission to make disciples in that process as well? Let me pray for you.